welcome to episode 48 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we're continuing with our Publishing 301 series with warranties and indemnities, which is great because I know nothing about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is going to be another dive into contracts language. So um, don't turn off your podcast. Keep listening. I promise it will be informative and useful and interesting. Hopefully. It's interesting to me, so I hope it will be interesting to well, other people. it should people. be useful to all of us anyway. I mean, we should, mm-hmm. we should always strive to better understand our own contracts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So warranties and indemnities. In your contract... Sometimes these are grouped together as the warranties and indemnities clause. Sometimes they're each separated out as their own thing. But I wanted to go, before we talk about the clauses in detail, I wanted to kind of define each one of them so that we know what we're talking about when we say warranties or indemnities. A warranty is a guarantee, That's essentially what it is. When you warrant something, you are guaranteeing it as the truth. And indemnity, when you indemnify your publisher or anyone else against them, um, essentially you are holding them harmless. You are taking all of the liability on for whatever you're indemnifying them against. And those things can vary. Um, So that is kind of what those two words mean and what those clauses are about. And you'll see them in lots of different kinds of legal documents. Um, and they have a place in publishing contracts. And these are some of those clauses that are always the subject of much conversation in publishing between publishers and agents and authors. There's always a lot of discussion around these clauses because they are... They're not bad clauses, but they're scary clauses, (laughs) (laughs) right? So, so let's kind of break it down and I can get into what I mean when I say they're scary clauses. Um, so the warranties that you're going to make in your publishing agreement are the things that you're going to guarantee to your publisher to be true. And some of these will vary, but all publishing contracts will have these few basic ones. You'll have to warrant to your publisher that the material, the work, the book that you've written is original and that you are the person who wrote it. You know, so essentially you're you're saying, yes, I really wrote this. I didn't plagiarize it. I didn't steal it from anyone else. It's mine. I wrote it. You are going to warrant to the publisher that you have the right to enter into this agreement, that by signing this contract, you're not violating any other publishing contracts that may exist or violating any other copyrights or other information. You're saying, yes, I have the legal freedom and the right as the sole owner and creator of this work to enter into this agreement freely. 
You're also going to warrant or guarantee to your publisher that the work has not ever been published elsewhere and is not in the public domain. Now, sometimes this one might get modified a little bit, like if you had previously self-published it and now a publisher, a traditional publisher is picking you up, we would modify this warranty because it would be irrelevant. We know the book's been previously published. Likewise, let's say that the first chapter of your book had previously been published in a magazine before you got your book deal. Um, The language would be altered to deal with that exception so that your contract wasn't violating anything. So it's important to tell your publisher if any section of the work has been published at any time previously, because if you don't tell your publisher that and you warrant in your contract that the, the, the work has never been published elsewhere, that's a, that's a material breach of your contract and that can get you into trouble. Um, yeah, basically you want to be upfront with any of your guarantees or warranties because I mean, nobody wants to pull the nuclear option, but if the publisher chooses to cancel your contract for any reason, they could also cite breach of warranty, basically, and uh-huh. say, look, you, this, was, this contract was drawn on essentially false, false pretenses, and so right. therefore this contract between us is null and void and invalid. So this is why you want yeah. to be upfront about this. Yeah. So those are kind of the basic ones that you're going to see in every warranties and indemnities clause. You have to kind of guarantee those things to the publisher, that the work is your own and you wrote it, that you are free to enter into the agreement and not legally bound by any other agreement to the work, and that um, the work has not been previously published and isn't in the public domain. So those things are going to be common. You're going to see them everywhere. Then you can have other warranties that extend beyond those that this is where people sort of start to get into the nitpicky gray area because nobody's going to argue with those warranties, right? You should feel pretty confident guaranteeing all of those things when you enter into a publishing agreement. You should know definitively that you wrote it. You should know whether or not you've published it elsewhere before. Like These are things that you are in control of and that you know. Some of these other warranties that I'm going to talk about now are less concrete or less knowable in some ways. Oftentimes, there'll be a warranty that will say that um, that the work does not violate any laws or slander anyone or have any defamation or anything like that for you know, any laws in the known universe? Well, I mean, <laughs> probably not, right? Like, you you can be pretty sure that your work is an offensive. Offensive is another one. It will say, well, I'll warrant that nothing in the work is offensive, <laughs> you know, <laughs> according to any laws or whatever. And so that is kind of like, okay, well, I can I can sit here and I can say, no, my book isn't offensive. It doesn't break any laws, you know, that I know of. It doesn't you know, libel anyone that I know of. I'm not defaming anybody as far as I'm aware. Um, But that becomes one that's sort of a... Publishers have started adding these things in that really broaden the scope of warranties, and that's detrimental to the author. Essentially, 
a rule of thumb for contracts is that publishers are always going to try to make things as broad as they can. And it is always in the best interest of the author to make contracts as narrow as possible. And if you think about each party and what the contract does for them, that makes sense. The publisher wants to broaden things and expand it to cover as many possible scenarios as they can think of, because they're the ones who are putting up this money and in this investment and this time and all of this stuff. And so in order to protect that financial investment, they want to cover as many bases as they can. Whereas for the author, on that side of the fence, you're in a completely different position. You want to make things as narrow and specific as possible so that you're not on the hook for things that aren't necessarily reasonable. So that's one of those warranties that you can kind of have. Another one that's in there a lot that might make sense for nonfiction but doesn't necessarily make sense in fiction all the time is that you'll be asked to warranty that no recipe or instructions within the text are known to be poisonous or harmful or <laughs> destructive in any way. You know, like you're not giving people the instructions to make bombs or your chicken soup recipe isn't going to kill anybody or anything like this that you to warranty, which again, if you're doing a cookbook, that kind of a warranty might make sense. Um, for a young adult novel, maybe not so much, mm -hmm. depending on what you're writing about. So that's another one that can be in there. Um, and, and it will go on and on too. Usually there's about 10 to 12 warranties that you'll be asked to make that are varying degrees of those. Some of the ones that I've mentioned, I've combined them, but you'll find them all listed out separately. Essentially, what you can do in terms of those warranties is look at the ones that make sense as an author, because you're not going to be able to just get rid of them. You're going to have to guarantee that you're entering this contract in good faith and have the ability and the right to do it. And that's reasonable. <laughs> and so take the warranties that are reasonable and agree to them. And then beyond that, start to look at what they're really asking you to guarantee and determine whether or not that actually makes sense. A lot of those you can ask to be deleted. You can ask. You're not necessarily going to get the deletion, but you can always ask um, to delete these because they're irrelevant to this particular work. Or you can sometimes add to the best of the author's knowledge as a preface in front of those warranties for things like, you know, those laws about libel or laws about copyright throughout the world. You know, maybe you're familiar with U.S. copyright, but who's to say whether or not this is in violation of a copyright elsewhere, you know. Those kinds of things you can put to the author's best knowledge in front of them oftentimes, and that will help mitigate your responsibility because then it would be up to the publisher to prove that you did have knowledge of these things and knowingly concealed that knowledge when making these guarantees. You can't just put to the best of author's knowledge on the top of the whole clause. <laughs> I see a lot of people sometimes in contract negotiations, rather than going through and negotiating each point bit by bit, they'll want to just say all these warranties are made to the best of author's knowledge and, you know, put kind of a general disclaimer on the whole thing, that's not going to fly. You can't say, to the best of my knowledge, I wrote it. Like, <laughs> you have to say, I wrote this book. Um, 
you know, so some of the warranties you're just going to have to make. And again, that shouldn't be a problem. So you have these warranties and these warranties are essentially the backbone of the agreement. As JJ said, without these things, the agreement would be made in bad faith and would be null and void. When you are indemnifying the publisher, that's the other part of this language. You've made these guarantees. You've said all of these things are true. And now, if someone brings a claim against you and the publisher for this book, saying that one of these things that you've guaranteed to be true, if that's the basis of the claim, if you said, I wrote this book, and someone else is like, oh, no, you didn't. I wrote that book. That is a material breach of your contract. There can be lots of breaches of contracts where people don't do the things that they're supposed to do, or you get extensions here, or you move stuff around there, and those are all called immaterial breaches. And they're important, and there are ways to work around them, and they shouldn't be happening, but they're not an automatic um oh my God moment. Like it's not, it's not like the record scratching to a halt where everything is just going to, you know, go up in flames. The warranties are, these are the basic, the basic skeleton of your agreement and they need to be true. So when you indemnify your publisher, if somebody brings a claim against any of these things, your chicken soup, made me sick every single time that I did it because this ingredient that you included is totally poisonous or, you know, whatever thing that they're bringing a claim about, if it relates to one of those guarantees, um, you are on the hook for all of the costs associated with the defense of the claim, the legal costs, the lawyer's fees, the court fees, if the publisher settles any settlement fees, if there's a final judgment in which the judge awards the third party, you know, damages, all that stuff is you. And the publisher is going to turn to you and hand you the bill and say, you have to pay for these things because you warranted that this was true. And it is not. And so that's what I mean when I say these are the scary clauses, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, because most authors are going to hear that and panic because the other thing is that claims, anybody can bring a claim, anybody, and it doesn't necessarily have to go to court and it doesn't have to ever get to a judge or even a settlement or anything. If, if the publisher just hires their lawyer to write a, you know, screw you letter back to whoever wrote the claim to scare them into hiding, you know, that's technically a cost associated with the claim. And these things can rack up tremendously fast. And that's frightening for authors who, as we've discussed on this podcast before, don't necessarily have the kind of money that we're talking about here. We've talked about advances in royalties and we've talked about how most writers have a day job. And, um, and so that can be really intimidating and there are things that you can do to mitigate that, to, to change that so that it is slightly in your advantage. And most really good agents will really be 
dogged about revising this language. Because again, these kind of things don't come up. They don't. This is not, you know, most books have no problems. There's no litigation. There's no anything. It's fine. But for that one in 100 time, when it happens, you're, you're screwed, essentially, if it happens. And so if you've got to get an agent, they'll be really dogged about this and they'll do the best that they can to mitigate this clause. Um, it's not going to get deleted. I say that. Um, I'm sure that somebody out there, some agent somewhere got somebody to delete their warranties and indemnities clause. And that person is a legend and we should all bow down. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I, there's always the exception that proves the rule, but publishers are going to cling tooth and nail to this. This is actually sometimes dictated by the publisher's insurance policy, what's in there. And so there's certain things that they can't negotiate, even if they wanted to, because otherwise their insurance won't cover them for various things. So these are the real, real nitty gritty legal clauses in a contract. Things that you can do to make the indemnity clause better for you is... And again, you can ask for these things. Agents ask for these things. Sometimes they get them, sometimes they don't. Um, but it's always worth the shot, right? So one thing that you can do is you can limit any financial responsibilities to final judgments. That means it has to get all the way to the court and a judge has to say definitively that you were wrong and the other person was right and then you would have to pay. So you'd only have to pay if you're wrong, if you lied, essentially. If you lied about your warranties, you would have to pay. But you wouldn't be responsible if somebody just brought a frivolous claim that never happened, and you wouldn't be responsible if the publisher just settled in order to make the problem go away. So if you limit your indemnity to final judgments only, that's much better for you because you can be much more secure in your knowledge that the things that you've warranted are true and that you won't be held responsible for anything frivolous. That's one way you can do it. You can also um, ask for approval over any settlements and not allow the publisher to settle a claim unless you approve. Um, in some cases, it might make more sense to settle because that might be cheaper <laughs> if you're in it the often, wrong. That often happens. Yeah. Sometimes even when you're not in the wrong, you know, there's all those things. It's even true. like in criminal cases, the plea bargains and stuff, mm -hmm. it's really to mitigate sentencing. You know, you take a plea, um, admitting to some part of the guilt in order to avoid being on the hook for all of it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, this this can happen, and it does some... Especially when there's a lot of money on the line, it's often easier to settle. Um, yep. Because both parties are probably going to hire the top-notch lawyers, and this could drag on forever and ever, and then the attorney fees just go up and up and up and up. And ultimately, in the end, settling out of court may... It may, you know... it. It sucks, but sometimes it just saves everyone a whole bunch of time and money. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, like I said, this doesn't happen very often unless, like I said, there's a ton of money on the line. Very few people will do this, but there are unscrupulous people out there who will target, you know, mm -hmm. successful properties and just be like, hey, that was my idea first. Right. 
just not even that they want to take it to court, but that they just want to settle out of court. So mm-hmm. to send a cease and desist letter doesn't actually, you know, you can hire a lawyer to write one for like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. But if somebody takes that action to court, then, you know, ultimately it will cost more to bring something to court for the person being accused mm-hmm. than it is to just be like, okay, fine, here's $5,000. Right. Which is, you know, it sucks, but that's the way... Sometimes the legal system works here. So, Unfortunately, yeah. And so one thing you can do is ask for approval over settlements because indemnity clauses will be written in such a way that the publisher gets all, all the control because, again, the publisher is the one putting up the money. And when the claims are brought, people are not going to bring claims against authors directly unless the author is incredibly wealthy. The author might be a party to the claim, but the claim is going to be brought against the publisher because they're the ones with money. So if you are not a super wealthy, famous celebrity author, the claim will be brought against the publisher and you'll be named as a party to it. It's only if you're you know, a celebrity writer who's making millions and trillions of dollars that the the person would go after you directly because again like JJ said most often the goal is to try to get some money and if you're shaking people down for money you want to make sure they have some to start with so because of that fact because people will be going after the publisher first and foremost it's usually written into the indemnity clauses that the publisher controls all the legal decisions they hire the lawyers they decide what to pursue and defend and what not to they decide when to settle all of it 100% in their control and you will be expected to cooperate there will be language in there that will say that you are responsible for assisting In the defense of any claims, should the publisher require it of you, you'll have to provide whatever evidence is determined necessary and cooperate in whatever ways they may see feasible. Because they're doing this, again, as a result of the warranties that you made. So the publisher will have all the control. So one thing you can do is ask for an approval over settlement so that you can at least be involved in that conversation. The publisher can't settle without you. Or just or not settle without you. You know, you have to be involved in that conversation. So that's another thing that you can do in addition to trying to limit it to final judgments. Um, other things that you can try to do is limit your liability, which is somewhat less successful sometimes, but it does occasionally work. You can sometimes limit your liability to the amount, the advance amount. To say that if you are, you know, if a claim is brought against you or whatever else, rather than being responsible for all the costs that arise, whatever legal fees, court fees, damages that are awarded, instead, your financial liability will be limited to the advance amount. So you'd essentially be paying the publisher back the advance, and that would be the end of it. If the if the monetary damages exceeded that, you wouldn't be responsible for anything beyond that amount is also something that sometimes people can try to negotiate in that clause. Um, those are all good, helpful things that will protect you. Um, I've seen each of those things implemented in various contracts at various places. Um, it is always going to be touch and go. Each publisher will have very, very, very strict house rules about warranties and indemnities and what can be done and what cannot be done. Um, 
It is a clause that people walk away over often. A lot of agents will ultimately, if they think that they can't get the clause to a place where they could advise their client to sign it, then they'll tell their client, in all honesty, I think we should walk. And ultimately, it's always going to be the writer's decision. Your agent can advise you, but they can't reject a deal on your behalf. Um, you know, but if your agent is telling you to walk away from something, it's probably a good idea to walk because, um, for lots of reasons across the board, it, people will walk over things that are not the warranties and indemnities clause. People will walk over all kinds of things, and there's lots of valid reasons to leave a deal on the table. Um, the warranties and indemnities clause is one of them. And these are standard clauses in contracts. Agents have seen a lot of them. And agents will know the difference between one that is okay to sign and one that is not so okay to sign. And, you know, part of the reason why the need for agents is so great in this industry and why I believe that agents are so important to the health and longevity of an author's career is that they know these things. They, they can understand, you know, the nuances of these clauses. And so I'd listen to their advice. If they, if they look at it and they tell you, yep, this one's good. This one's fine. This is, this is within the bounds of what's acceptable within the industry, then go ahead and sign it and don't lose sleep over it because a, a basic warranties and indemnities clause is going to be limited to the things that you've warranted, that you've guaranteed, and you should you should not have any problem guaranteeing a basic number of things. You know, it, yeah, it, it you should shouldn't. be able to say yes, I wrote it. Yes, I didn't yeah. steal it from somebody else. Yes, this was yeah. my own idea. Yes, I'm not defaming or mm-hmm. you know libeling anyone in my work. Um, that's kind of the basic stuff, really, in a warranties clause that's all they really want to know they basically they just want to be like did you write it is it your work are you not scamming somebody else in order to sell Mm -hmm. it to us um the indemnities part is really the i think the publisher is just trying to to let themselves off the hook this is going to sound terrible but it's like they're trying to absolve themselves in the event that you did lie that this entire mm-hmm. contract was made on false pretenses, like I said before, then the, then they can just be like, no, that's not us because they guaranteed us that this was made mm-hmm. in good faith. So we are not responsible for that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I work for a publisher right now and I have worked at various publishers for the last several years. And so I'm definitely on one side of the fence in my job. Uh, my personal sympathies tend to be more on the side of authors. I started by working in literary agencies. I have friends who are writers. Um, my sympathies and allegiances tend to lie more on that side of the fence, which is why I try to educate authors about contracts whenever possible. Um, but from the publisher's perspective, publishers spend a lot of time losing money. Not every book earns out. Most books won't earn out. And that's money that the publisher doesn't 
get back, doesn't get to see again, advances are non-refundable. And so when you put yourself in the mindset of the publisher and you look at the publishing business model, which relies so much on fronting cash and not always seeing a return on that investment, it is understandable why they would be so keen on indemnity language to try to recoup money when they feel they've been screwed. Yeah. Oddly enough, I know you're you're like, I'm more sympathetic to the writer. I'm like, but <laughs> if you're the one who lied about your well, warranty, totally. Then totally. The publisher absolutely has every right to be like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's but, your and problem, that's why, mine. That's why if your if your warranties aren't limited to final judgments, then yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not crying for you. You you, you do what you got to do. It there's kind of that gray area where if it's any claim frivolous or not, where somebody could just outright you know, be making crap up. And normally if that happens, here's the other thing to reassure you. If somebody is making an obviously frivolous claim, the publisher's not even gonna bat an eyelash until an actual court summons appears. If people just send cease and desist letters or whatever, and they're clearly ridiculous, um, the publisher's not gonna waste any money trying to defend against it until it's actually brought to a court. And most people won't, when they realize it's not going to be that easy, will just kind of give up. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're not going to be, you're not going to be hemorrhaging money over frivolous claims left and right. Like that's, that's not going to happen. It's not, um, you know, the, the legal system is slightly more competent than that. <laughs> So. Yeah, no, and, and often, even if it does go to court, a lot of times these claims just get thrown out by the judge because mm-hmm. they can see it and just be like, well, this is clearly someone who just wants cash grab, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just throw the case out. And ultimately, that's, you know, what it is. And it's sort of minimal uh, cost on your part. There mm-hmm. is one thing you can do personally with uh, with respects to personal liability, and that's not actually in your contract, is to actually create an LLC or a limited liability company. Yes, that is a thing, although publishers have come up with a response to that. <laughs> True. Um, but a lot of times... But yeah. If especially, I mean, it's really not something that most authors genuinely have to worry about, honestly. Yeah, no. Um, it's really for people who make a lot of money off of writing. Um, and basically what a limited liability corporation does is that it absolves you of personal responsibility and shifts the liability to the company that you have created. So if someone wins a settlement or a suit against you, um, and they are asking for a specific number of you know, whatever, and the damages awarded or whatever are greater than your actual worth, your personal worth. Um, they can't go after you personally. So even though, so they can go after your limited liability company for all it's worth and you can, you know, do that and, and declare bankruptcy essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. but they can't go after you personally. So they can't go after anything that's under your personal name. Like they can't go after your car or your house or anything Mm -hmm. like that. The limited liability company is generally, um, there for anything related to the book 
and not mm-hmm. your personal assets. So they can really only go after that. Um, so, and that's, like I said, not all that common. It's really, it's not something most authors have to worry about. True. It is not. Although it did remind me of two other things. One thing is that I have seen authors sign as LLCs um, before. And that's the other thing, too, is the contract would be made out to your company and you would sign on behalf, yeah. On behalf of the company. Um, so if you try to do it retroactively where you sign the contract as an individual and it's made out to you as an individual, and then when it becomes time to receive your advance check, you say, oh, by the way, I want you to make the payments out to my company, we're going to have to do an addendum <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to fix that because all payments need to be made to the person that is the party to the contract. One thing publishers have done sometimes, sometimes, this is not, by no means is this industry standard, but I have seen it, and I've seen it in more than one place, um, is that if you sign as an LLC, sometimes a publisher will make you sign a guarantee form, a personal guarantee, which essentially makes everything that JJ just said null and void, because the guarantee will say... I will personally back up all of my company's liabilities. So you can't just declare bankruptcy with the company. Then they will come after you personally. Um, That's not common. Uh, It sucks. I've seen it happen, though. I've seen it happen. Um, It's also something you can walk away from, to be honest. If 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 you're signing as an LLC and they said, we want you to personally guarantee your work, you can just be like, nah, that's okay. Nah, no. (laughs) Yeah. And again, your agent will tell you, yeah, we can walk away from this. The other question that this just reminded me of that I've seen a lot come up is the idea of the author being added to the company's insurance. And I don't mean like the company's healthcare insurance. um, Although that would be great. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, depending, depending on the healthcare plan, I guess. Um, But uh, the company's Some publishers, and usually this applies almost exclusively to bigger publishers because, again, insurance is expensive, but they'll have essentially media peril insurance. They'll have insurance that will cover a wide range of things. If something goes wrong, it protects the publisher, yada, yada, yada. And um, a lot of agents will sometimes ask that the author be named to that publisher's insurance policy so that the insurance would then cover the author as well in the event that anything happens. Um, Sometimes this does happen. Sometimes publishers say, sure, no problem, and do it. Sometimes publishers say no. A lot of this can be based on what the insurance policy is and how what the process is for adding other people and what restrictions are on that. So it may not be entirely within the publisher's control whether or not they're allowed to do that. And also, if you're publishing with a small press and you ask to be added to their insurance, they're just going to laugh at you because they don't have that kind of insurance Mm -hmm. because it's too expensive and so it doesn't even exist for them. Um, So that would really be like a big lucrative publisher would have that kind of a thing. Um, But that is also another thing that, you know, you can always ask for. Uh, to be named as an additional insured. Yeah. I mean, this, like the liability part of your contract, again, most of these scenarios that Kelly and I are describing really won't come up. Um, you know, I would not worry about it. Again, the, a lot of the bigger authors have formed LLCs, but again, that's not going to be every author. Um, 
So it, it, a lot of this will probably never, ever turn up when you sign a contract, so I wouldn't worry about it. But that's just really what it means and what the potential ramifications of warranties and indemnities are. And it's basically, as Kelly had said, it's the spine of the contract. Um, because other things, you know, like, you know, getting your option in a specific time or having your publisher mm -hmm. respond to you in a specific time frame regarding your option. Or in my case, I asked for an extension on my, on my book, like, that my my deadline is in the contract, and it said I would deliver by the state. But I told my editor, I was like, "Look, I don't think I'll be able to make it." And she said, "Sure, that's not a problem. You know, that is an immaterial breach just because I'm mm -hmm. delivering." And we, you know, we both agreed to it via email, of course, that this is fine. This is the new due right. date. And my editor even said, "If you need more time beyond that, then we can just add an amendment uh, amendment to the contract and just change the language and be like." Okay, so the original contract's at this date, but we can amend it to this date. Done. Mm -hmm. It's not really a big deal. Like like I said, those are not things that people would cancel contracts over. But something as big as a guarantee, you know, you saying that this is my original work and it's not, is definitely something that people would cancel a contract over. Um, and it's this is also why plagiarism is kind of that weird gray area. <laughs> Um, in terms of, of that, it's, you know, it's, it's hard when it's hard to prove. And, and then when you're guaranteeing that, when you're signing your contract, I did not lift, this is all mine. This, I did not lift any, anything from anything else. It's like really, it's hard and something, you know, not every publisher is going to cancel a contract over that, or they may cancel your book over that, or it, it really kind of depends on, on lots of different things. So um, but yeah, that's basically you just saying, look, it's mine. <laughs> I didn't lie. And that's, I think all anybody can really, can ask for in terms of signing yeah. a contract. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So yeah, I think that covers it. Yeah. So definitely let us know. I learned a lot today. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. So why don't we move on to our other segments? which is, uh, you working on anything? I am a little bit. Um, I don't know if I can really call it working on stuff if it's only like, like 300 words, but I have added roughly 300 words to my work in progress. Um, the other day you, JJ texted me with an idea for my work in progress, um, that as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, well, that's really obvious. Like, why, <laughs> like, why isn't it already like that? Um, because it just seems like, well, what else? Like, yeah, it was just a very obvious suggestion that you had and you texted me about it and I got really excited and, um, started thinking about that a little bit more. And so, um, I haven't written a ton, but I have written a little bit since that conversation and Yay. have been brainstorming a lot. So I'm excited. I feel good. Yay. Well, yeah. I've actually also started morning pages. <laughs> so great, right? It's pretty awesome. Um, like I said, I do journal, so it's not that I don't journal, but the fact of the matter is that I never did it sort of first thing in the morning before I did anything else. And I feel like that is actually what makes a difference. <laughs> Yeah, it does. You know, because normally what I would do is I get up and I would take a shower and get my coffee and go to work and settle in and this and then kind of open up my journal. But if I just do it when I get up first thing in the morning, 
it's it's a very different mind space. And it's like nothing else has cluttered me and like weighed me down in terms of stuff to do or stuff to consider. So I feel like it's really been helping my writing anyway because I will often first thing in the morning when I get up is write about my book and kind of my thoughts about my book and stuff. So that's great and I'll see how how much I can maintain it. Um but yeah, I just like I started on Monday and I like Monday and Tuesday were so productive at work. It was fantastic. Of course, today I'm exhausted, but you know, um it is it's it's a very different thing and uh, I didn't hit 3 pages this morning. Maybe that's why I just feel like less productive today. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. It's like setting intention for the day too. Like I'm sitting down, like these are the things I need to get done. And then mm-hmm. having that and moving forward has been, yeah, there's a quote from hook, which is a phenomenal movie. I love that movie <laughs> from my childhood. Um, there's a quote from hook where Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell is saying, um, to Peter Pan, you know, that place between dreaming and awake, that's where I'll always love you. And I feel like when I do my morning pages first thing in the morning, it is kind of that like liminal space where I'm not, a lot of times when I'm, when I journal, it's like a conscious act. I'm like, this is what I'm writing and this is what I'm going to write about. And it's not, um, like a discovery process so much as a, like, this is like, it's more deliberate. And I feel like when I do it first thing in the morning and I'm still in that kind of in between space, um, it does feel more creative even when I'm writing about mundane things. And I do feel like it opens me up to write. I, things come out on the page that I'm not necessarily consciously thinking about. And I just think it's, I just really love it so far. Two thumbs up. Yeah. It's been pretty great. I have been writing, um, a lot. Um, and I just feel like I've been more productive because as we move to our next segment, what we've been reading, I have been reading as well. <laughs> <gasps> Me too. <laughs> Yay. You go first then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I finally decided, okay, it's been like a terrifying amount of months at this point. It's been like four months or five months maybe since I have read a new book that wasn't just rereading Harry Potter or Miss of Avalon or whatever else is on my bedside table. Um, and I finally just hit my breaking point. And I really think honestly, it's that in recent weeks, so many great books have come out. Well, yeah, and all the big and books things. come out in the fall. Mm-hmm. And so I just, the temptation is just too much. I can't resist. Of course, because I have been lazy, by the time I finally this week logged into my library account and took a look at what was available, I'm like number 5,070 on every waiting list for everything that I could ever possibly want to read. But I signed up for all of them. And I did start a book last night. I started The Raven King, which mm-hmm. came out quite a while ago now. Well, not quite a while ago, but it came, it's been out for a while. There was no wait list on the library. So let's put it that way. (laughs) Um, and I just started reading that and I have a lot of great things queued up. I'm really excited. It feels really nice to be reading because again, I have been reading, I've been rereading Harry Potter and some other things, but it, those are so ingrained in my memory that it, it's a very different act to be rereading those books than it is to be reading something new that I've never read before. Mm -hmm. And so the experience of it is very different. And, um, I'm just enjoying the act of 
reading again, maybe more so than I'm actually enjoying the Raven King. <laughs> my heart, my heart belongs to Ronan Lynch. And so I think Dream Thieves will just always be my favorite. And perhaps I should just pretend that it's the only book in the series because I just love Ronan so much. Um, so the Raven King isn't bad by any means, but I think I'm just so excited to be reading something again. Um, so yeah. What about you? So... I did finish A Shadow Bright and Burning by Jessica Cluis, uh, which was really fun. I, you know, it's about a girl in like Victorian London and it's magic. Um, so I love that kind of thing. And I also read The Graces by Laura Eve, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's an interesting piece of work. Um it's very atmospheric and it's about witches and I haven't read anything about witches in forever, basically. And I was kind of like, this is great. Um, it's not really what I was expecting. So, but it, I, I enjoyed it. I had a, I, I really liked it. And I also read, um, it's a novella by Sean and McGuire called every heart, a doorway. And it's about, it's like it's it takes place in um Eleanor West's home for wayward children and it's basically like a boarding school slash like group asylum for children who have gone into other worlds and returned. So like people who fell into Fairyland or Wonderland or the Halls of the Dead or you know like some other magical land and they've returned. Um it's so hard to describe. I loved this book a lot. It's this little gem of a novella, and it was really wonderful. I really loved it. Uh, totally did not expect it. It's very dark <laughs> as well. Also unexpectedly dark. Like I didn't for something with such a whimsical pre- uh, premise. I didn't expect it to get that dark. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. And then I just today finished Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo. Ugh. I have the most massive book hangover. Like, all I want to do is lie down in my bed and then moan about how good this book is and just be like, why does it, why, why even bother writing? This book exists. Like, there's no point now. Um, <laughs> it's it's excellent. I mean, I love Lee, but I also hate Lee because it's so good. Um, <laughs> I, I just, if you haven't read Six of Crows, um, that one, one, why? <laughs> and to just go out and read that and then read Cookie Kingdom because there's so everything about it, like on a craft level, it's impeccable. Like the way things are plotted, the way things fit together, the way all of that sort of stuff. It's like it's like looking at clockwork and all the intricate pieces moving and working together. But then there's like characterization is so good and Kelly should know because I've been g-chatting her all day because I've been Mm -hmm. listening to it on audio and I'm just like I have feels like I'm dying I'm wringing my hands because I'm dying over here um so I obviously that's a full-throated endorsement it's a quite a big book but I finished it in like a day so (laughs) that that's that's my recommendation um I don't know what I'm gonna read next like I said massive book hangover so I don't know I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's me. Anything else that you're, you know, reading or listening Not to or watching? Or reading. Uh, but David and I started watching The Get Down. Mm. We've only seen two 
episodes so far. So we've got, I think, four more to go. And everyone says that episode three is the best, so I'm actually really excited about that one. Um, we are intending to watch Stranger Things, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, the Get Down, I haven't finished. I'm just in the beginning, so I don't have too much to say about it yet, except that I do think it is worth the watch. I think it's uneven, but the great parts are really great, and I love... I, well, I love hip-hop, and I love, um, you know, I always think I don't like disco, but then I hear disco, and I'm like, no, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. <laughs> you know, but it's just like you hear disco, and I don't know what I think, the cheesy mirror ball and whatever else. So I, I always Most people just kind of curl. Yeah. Oh, I'm not an ABBA fan, I must say. Um, so I kind of sneer is. at disco, but the disco music in this is great. The, everybody's so talented. David Diggs has, I don't want to call it a cameo, but it's a, it's a guest recurring role. And of course I love David Diggs. Um, the pilot was directed by Baz Luhrmann and he's a producer on it. And the pilot is 90 minutes long, which is long. Um, and it is very Baz Luhrmann. It's a spectacle, and everything is over the top and um, heightened, and it's kind of great <laughs> in a lot of ways. I love Baz Luhrmann. I do. Like, okay, he's he's Australia was terrible, honestly, but like his style, I love. There's mm-hmm. he just. He understands camp and melodrama the way like no one else does. Yeah, yeah. There's some uh, there's some interesting things about it, and there's some interesting parallels. It's a musical, but it's not really a musical. But there is some of that fourth wall breaking a little bit sometimes. Um, you know, so one minute it will feel very West Side Story, and the next minute it will be, you know, completely unlike anything else. It's 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 uneven, but it's good. I think. Um, I don't think it is a story about the origin of hip hop. That's kind of like what they've been selling it as. No, it's a and story it's about not. kids. Yes, set in the time period where hip hop was just beginning to get started. Yes. And I think, I mean, obviously I still like it no matter what, but I was going into it kind of thinking like, okay, this is about the origin of hip hop. And I knew that parts of it were going to be fictionalized, but I thought that that was kind of going to be the, the lifeline of the show. And it isn't, it is about these kids and they just happen to be against the backdrop of this, you know, the birth of hip hop, um, I, I think I recommend it. I mean, I haven't seen it all the way through yet, so I guess that could change. Um, but I, I do. I'm enjoying it thoroughly so far. I haven't seen it yet because, again, book book two. Um, but I actually have the soundtrack um, because, I again, I also like hip-hop. And so I, I just decided to buy it. And it's got a whole bunch of great producers and artists contributing to it. So mm-hmm. um, I do listen to that at work even though I haven't seen the show. I like Baz Luhrmann. I do think he's uneven in general. <laughs> like, not just like 
in one thing or another. Like overall, I think he's very, very uneven. But I think he's also the kind of person for whom his style works or it doesn't. There's no middle ground about Baz Luhrmann at all. And for me, that really highly stylized, fourth wall breaking, over the top, almost thinly characterized people Mm -hmm. really work for me because what he's able to do, and I'm just saying this because I actually recently rewatched, not recently, recently, but fairly recently, we had rewatched Moulin Rouge. Is that one your favorite of his? Yeah, I think it is. I actually think Romeo plus Juliet is better (laughs) as a film. That one's my favorite. Um, But I do love Moulin Rouge, I think, the most. And, um, but what he's able to do is because he creates this area, this atmosphere of heightened emotion and camp, because like I said, not a lot of people understand camp and how to do it well. And he does. And, um, and I, I love camp of all kind, all kinds that, so you hit these high notes of, you know, camp performances, but when you get to real earnest, pathos and emotion it really hits you like a Mm -hmm. really earnest gut punch and he does that on purpose you have to have the highs the super high highs to feel the low lows i mean he's not a subtle he's not a subtle director at all (laughs) like even not even a little bit but again that works for me and it but it also works for certain stories and it doesn't work for others um, I think him and his most subtle was probably strictly ballroom. And I also love that movie, but I don't know. Something about Moulin Rouge is, is definitely my favorite. So yeah, I mean, I like Romeo plus Juliet. I I think I was too young for the Leonardo DiCaprio crush though. I was like deliberately anti Leonardo DiCaprio when I was a kid. Like, be- just because, just because everyone that I knew loved him, and I was like, well, I don't, then. Um, I, when I started watching that movie again in college, I definitely saw the appeal. <laughs> um, I love Claire Danes in that, though. I think she is just so great in that movie. I just love that whole movie. I think it works. I think it's the perfect marriage, I guess. I have not seen his Great Gatsby. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that I either. haven't seen it. And on, on the one hand, I think it makes sense because Baz Luhrmann is nothing if not about opulence. And Great Gatsby is also a lot about opulence. And so I think that it makes sense how they would go together. But at the same time, I wonder if it's too too similar of a match of material and... An artist. Okay. The thing is, I think The Great Gatsby is a really subtle book. Yeah. And I don't think he's a subtle he's director, not. so there's no match there. Yeah, I don't know. I thought I, I think Romeo and Juliet, in terms of, you know, because he's done some original stuff, too. I remember Strictly Ballroom I loved, and um, I didn't see Australia, but uh, from what I hear, I'm not really missing anything. <laughs> you're not. You're not. <laughs> but I, I just thought Romeo and Juliet was just the most perfect you know, divine match of, of material and artist, because I think that the things that he did make sense 
and the updates worked in a way, you know, with the guns being the swords and it just all kind of clicked in a, in a really serendipitous way, I felt. And I thought the performances were great. And of course that soundtrack will probably forever be in my top five movie soundtracks of all time. So, I mean, yeah, I was 14 I was when it came out, I think. Young. So I was like peak. <laughs> Like, that's the perfect age. I think age. it was, like, 11. Yeah. I think it was, like, 10 or 11 when Romeo and Juliet came out. So it was a little bit too young. Um, like I said, I think I was just too young for the Leo thing. He was never, like, I, like, by the time I was in my teenage years, I don't think he was really doing anything in terms of work, really. You know, so it's like he was sort of hit his peak and his stride in the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't think he did much in the 2000s at all. So I kind of missed that. Plus, um, he has not really aged all that well. (laughs) Yeah, he, I don't think he's aged poorly, but I, yeah, as as Renee Atia says, he's Jack Nicholsoning. Oh, <laughs> I feel like that's a blast. I feel like you just said something shocking, something indecent. But is it wrong? <laughs> is it incorrect? I mean, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer that. I can't answer that question. Uh, anyway, so now I'm just thinking about teenage on. heartthrobs and whatever else. Ugh. I feel like I've like my teenage years was like a black hole of pop music because mm-hmm. nothing was good in the early 2000s and a black hole of teen heartthrobs. Yeah. Yeah. It's like nothing for a while. Everybody liked or like people liked Orlando Bloom for like a hot second. I wasn't one of them, but Aside from him, there's like, I can't, I can't think of anyone in like the early 2000s who was like a teen heartthrob of any kind. Well, I grew up in that weird place where like, like the preteen heartthrobs, like, um, Elijah Wood and Jonathan Taylor Thomas and like, but like when they were child actors and stuff. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like when, when Jonathan Taylor Thomas was like 12. Yeah. That was like a very, my sister was very into JTT as they say. (laughs) Yeah, we're showing our age here. Uh, whatever happened to him? He did some like, like Hallmark Christmas movies, I think, and and The Lion King. <laughs> I don't know. What else. I don't think he's done much. I know as an adult he did some kind of Christmas romantic comedy. That I've never seen, but I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix because when I get really bored and I'm like scrolling through stuff, I'll inevitably come across it and be like, oh, wow. But I haven't yet been desperate enough to actually watch. The only thing I've ever seen with JTT in it was The Lion King. That was it. And that's not even his face. That's just his voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I missed the whole teen heartthrob thing. I was present for it, but I never bought into it. Like, I was very deliberately against the grain on all that stuff. Not because I was cool, but just because I don't know why. So I don't have celebrity well, crushes in general, though. Well, I kind of did and didn't. Like, in high school, I had a huge crush on Colin Firth, but that was because of the Pride <laughs> of and course. Prejudice adaptation. Of course. 
Um, which I also watched at the same time Bridget Jones's Diary it came out when it's essentially the same role, but it's brilliant. Um, and then, but even then, like, I didn't really, I did like Elijah Wood a lot, but I don't know if it was a crush necessarily. I just liked him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all the actors I liked were like weird or older and people were just like, what, why? Like this, he's not like a pinup actor. Like I had this like weird thing for Jeffrey Rush to the point where I would watch <laughs> movies like Quills when I was like 16 and be like, I made a weird choice, but I'm into it. You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was me as a teenager. So anyway, let us move on. Uh, I don't believe we have any new questions this week, but if you do, please go ahead and submit them, and we will try and answer them next week. So why don't we go on to what you're saying. This week, the review is from Beale6798. Great inside look. Trust me, if you're a book lover, you should give this a shot. Publishing Crawl is one of the few podcasts that I listen to regularly. JJ and Kelly have a light, easy rapport that is pleasant to listen to, obviously the result of their long friendship. If you want to become an author, work at a publishing house, or just love reading, this is a great podcast to listen to. My favorite aspects of the series thus far have been their Publishing 101 episodes, which really go in-depth on what the publishing process entails. I've also gotten so many good book recommendations out of this podcast. It's kind of ridiculous how closely my tastes align with the hosts. Well, good news. We've, we're starting recommendations again. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it was a slow summer, guys. To consume. It was a slow summer. Oh, my God. Um, so, yes, thank you very much. Um, so please go ahead and leave us another rating and review so we can read it out loud. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be moving on to a new series where we'll be talking about adaptations. Uh, book to film adaptation, book to TV show adaptation, what works, what doesn't work. Um, so, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye! Did we read this? I can't remember now. I don't think so. I feel like we do this every week. We like read the same one over and over again. Like, like, did we do this already? Great inside look. I think that's the correct one. Okay. Awesome. So we'll do it again. (laughs) (laughs) We skipped a line. Oh crap. (laughs) 
I was like, no, I didn't. It's right there. Oh, my God.